Talk Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba to news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 73, was recorded live July 7th, 2011. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. This week in the news, we have something to learn. Diver found. Mostly trash. Sunglasses found. Scuba manufacturer buys dive shop. And last but not least, certified lionfish slayer. This week, I'm going to be going solo, but I have my trusty chat room with me, who I'm sure will keep me entertained if I can't. And uh, as we always like to say, we'll get started in the news. The first article that we have coming up is uh, from the BBC uh, and I have no idea where any of these locations are, so uh, you know, I'll just stumble around and slaughter names like you're used to me doing. This first one is Dorset Coast Scuba Diving Accident, our highest in the country. Uh, I chose this one just because I thought there was something to be learned. Uh, they said that in 2010, there were 41 separate diving accidents, and they said that was three times the national average, so it was, popul- uh, it was uh, concentrated in one location. They said that the visibility in that area can be three meters compared to 30 meters in the Red Sea. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the dive liaison officer, Portland Coast Guard, said divers now tend to do their courses abroad when they're on holiday. Then they come straight back to the UK for warm, from warm, clear waters, then jump in the cold, murky water doing a 20-meter dive off a boat. They get panicky, their buoyancy isn't controlled, and they have a rapid ascent. So the rapid ascent is the biggest risk to a scuba diver. Uh, they're also saying that uh, you know that the, the divers aren't accustomed to the, the low vision and that they end up panicking. So uh, they said that uh, it's about not sticking to procedures and not doing what they're taught. Uh, people tend to get into a won't happen to me. So make sure that you're getting training. I also say that's why it's a good reason to dive local. You know, all this uh, great visibility is awesome, but if you can't get into uh, your local diving situation and get out there, then uh, you know, you're missing out on a lot. So the next article up there that we have in the news is we have a diver found uh, working together. With, there are a couple dive boat captains, or I won't say dive boat captains, but captains of, of ships, and they found uh, a missing diver. Uh, back on the, the dive boat, was the diver's father, uh, wife, and uh, 18-month-old son. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't seen. The scuba diver said he could see the boat, but he could not swim to it. He saw his wife on board as she was searching for him, looking in the opposite direction. Uh, within minutes, the this other captain, Mike uh, Galagana, heard his uh, the wife's radio call reporting her husband missing. His mind immediately shot back to a similar call years ago, a call he didn't answer, a call he thought other boaters would help. He says, I'll never forget the time. Uh, guys were trapped in an overturned boat, and they didn't survive. I regret not going for help. So this time he decided to do something. Uh, he didn't want to have that feeling again. Uh, so he got back to the site with some other captains. Uh, they laid out a plan of a grid to search. 
He says that the captains kind of have a professional brotherhood. You help others and they'll be there for you. Uh, they had many years of work at sea on boats and pulled their knowledge to conduct a search. All the boats fish there, and it's Shark Alley. They figured the direction the diver might have drifted. Uh, they verified the wind was pushing the tender south as the current flowed north. Uh, we all knew what had to be done. Uh, after about 7 p.m., he said he noticed something that looked like a black coconut in the water. I literally almost ran into him. Pulling him aboard, the diver asked, how did you find me? Uh, By the grace of God, now get in the boat. Hours after the rescue, he was somber and thinking, uh, the waning light and time, if they had not found him when he did, the outcome might have been much different. Now, what this makes me think is that uh, he didn't actually have uh, a marker buoy, which would have made him much easier to find. In fact, they wouldn't uh, have gone away, so he didn't have a, a lift bag or a marker. Uh, that sounds like his first mistake. Also, it sounds like he was diving alone. Uh, he had a, a crew back on the boat, his wife, son, and father, but uh, none of them appeared to be divers or diving. So he was diving. It looked like he was diving by himself. Um, so, you know, good work on the captains. But as you can see, I mean, he said that's, you know, that, that's amazing to spot something just a little head bobbing in the water. It's awful hard to see. The next one on our list, as I pull it up, is Too Much Fishing Line, Turtle Rescue. This one's out of Dayton Beach, Inlet, Florida, uh, Reef Rescue Divers stumbled upon a struggling green sea turtle one mile off the coast. The two reef volunteers were on a routine scuba dive checkout of the local reefs. One of the divers spotted a 10-pound juvenile green turtle on the ocean floor. I saw the turtle and said, something's just not quite right, said Terry Sanjean. The injured turtle had three fishing hooks in it and was tangled to mess a line. Uh, as a result, his head was tipped to one side. I don't think I, I don't think it could have eaten. Uh, just the fact that I could touch it and pick it up suggested that it was in trouble. He turned it over, brought it to the surface. Uh, the, the turtle is now at the Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau Beach with the goal of releasing it back into the ocean for a new start. Unfortunately, this is uh, all too common. Uh, you know, some, Sometimes even worse in the wildlife is when divers get stuck in that. Uh, many times when, when we've been doing river dives, that seems to be what we're getting snagged in more than anything else. Not only do you have to be worried about logs and rebar, but you also have the fishing line. I don't know what you do to prevent it. Uh, I mean, you, I like to allow fishing, but uh, it seems like it's easy for uh, objects and animals to get caught up in that sort of mess. Next article up on the list is mostly trash. Looks like it's the they've had multiple years of this event, and I'm pasting these into the chat room. Trash, but a little treasure for harbor cleanup. Uh, and this one is out of uh, Australia. Uh, the rubbish warriors were joined by forces to pull 800 kilograms of litter from the top end coast. And uh, if you go and look at the article, they've got a, a photo of some of the items that pulled out. It must must have been similar to our 4th of July celebrations. Cause it looks like to be very heavy on the fireworks. Uh, they had eight boats and 90 people on land. They found a variety of things from syringes, thongs, and a fire extinguisher. Scuba divers marched into Lake Alexander, recently cleared of dangerous E. coli bacteria levels to gauge the trash situation. As our main concern, creating a carpet of death, they suffocate everything underneath. Uh, they did some cleaning up. Uh, some of the items that they pulled up was of the 800 kilograms of rubbish, uh, 1.7 tons less than last year. They had 63 thongs. Now, thongs must mean something else. Like, 
because uh, it says 63 thongs, no pairs. So thongs, I think somebody's meaning flip-flops, not the thongs that I'm thinking of. Uh, four car batteries, one fire extinguisher, a half a ton of metal from the nearby Fireman's Wharfs, uh, several syringe, syringes at Rapid Creek, no shopping and tr- trolleys, uh, which must be carts, compared to a total of 17 that they found last year. Yes, and I have verification from a local down there. He says that thongs are flip-flops. I like what I was visualizing a little better, but uh, uh, that's okay. This next one is eyeglasses found. Some more things found under the water. If you can't find trash, find something else. This was, uh, and you got to love the internet today. Ox says, what you call thongs, we call G-strings. Yeah, we call them G-strings, too. That works. Okay. Okay. This one is uh, sunglasses retrieved four years after a plunge in the lake. Uh, Shrugs dive team member Dive Ward uh, says it's a junkyard down there. Uh, he started diving about a decade ago when his wife Sandy pur- purchased a package of scuba lessons for him. He has helped recover everything from drowning victims, submerged vehicles, to pres- prescription glasses. We are at the port side, o- port side ordering dinner. The water was murky because it was a busy area. I dove back on a jet ski the following day to look, but there, but no, it was it. I left my name and number in a case and popped up. Never occurred to me that it would. Initially, Ward was searching for an expensive pair of sunglasses. Vacationer dropped over the side when he found McGuire's instead because the driver's license that was encased in plastic, he could make out McGuire's name. A Google search led to Smith Mountain Eagle. And Ward called the office to notify her of the discovery. And then this next one, along the same lines, but this in this case, it was a ring, and he found it about 13 years ago. And, and wait till you hear this. Kind of interested what everybody's ideas are. Uh, a, man, a man trying to find Emma Sanson's class ring's owner. Uh, Ed Chanwick had no idea it'd be so difficult to find the owner of distinctive Emma Sampson's high school class ring he found years ago at Camp Comer in DeKalb County. Uh, it was a class ring from 1978. He called the school and talked to several people, but he was not able to find the ring's order. The initials LMH are engraved inside the white gold man's ring. Chadwick, 63, learned to scuba dive when he was in his 50s. Uh, he had been working on a project to repair a pipe at Camp Cromer's Lake. Uh, it was a Boy Scout camp that had been used by groups for all years for camping activity. Um, the camp wanted to lower the water level of the lake, but first needed to repair the pipe. In exchange for his work to help repair the pipe, he asked if he could use his metal detector while he was at the lake. They let me hunt around the dock where the family cabins are. All I found was this ring. He says it was not long after he learned scuba dive that he found the ring about 12 years ago. I've been trying to find the owner ever since. Someone told him the initials LMH graduated in 1978. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I mispronounced that. He's called the school after he found the ring, and they said that nobody with the initials LMH graduated in 78. They said they'd be glad to take it and put it in the safe, but he felt like it was just going to sit there forever. I'd like to give it back to whoever it belongs to. The ring means nothing to me. The ring has 19 on one side with a purple and gold flag. The other side, 78, with a school mascot Underneath the stone is a small diamond. The, and what's odd about this one, you figure that would be easy for the school to pull up in the records, but they're saying that nobody with that initial. So it makes you wonder, uh, was it a misspelling? I can't imagine anybody misspelling their name. Did somebody change their name? Did somebody maybe not graduate? Uh, or worse yet, maybe they didn't uh, survive to an age to graduate. So 
Uh, but if you know anybody in that area, uh, we have a link in the show notes. Um, it, it just seems unusual that in this day and age that somebody, uh, they, they can't find it, especially with all that information. Uh, here's the next one. This one was a uh, press release earlier today. Yeah, bargain ring, Dave says, misengraved. Oh, come on. This internet is driving me nuts. It's like I doomed if you do, doomed if you don't. I like to sometimes paste those articles in early and have them, and then you got those ads grinding away in the right side of each page. It takes the internet to a crawl. Uh, Brownies Marine Group plans to acquire US-1 Scuba. The Brownie Marine Group, a uh, designer distributor of recreational diving products, and what I'm most familiar with them is, or aware of, is they do a lot of hooker rigs. Uh, so they're a manufacturer. And what is so interesting about this story is that U.S. Scuba is a traditional owner-operator store in Pompano Beach, Florida. So it makes you wonder what an, uh, a manufacturer is interested in doing in a store. And, and there is a couple, I mean, there's a history for this. Some of the original equipment manufacturers came the other way, where they were stores, and then just started making a product and eventually uh, morphed into it. In fact, I believe Morris, which uh, diving is still around off, up there in the East Coast, and they originally did the old Mark V dive helmets. So, you know, it, it's not unknown, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it's like as, as Rich Sinowick says, you know, if you want to figure out how to make a, a million dollars in scuba diving, start with two. Um, they said they're expanding our suite of products, travel and adventure travel to a broader range of outdoor enthusiasts. We'll create an improved experience for consumer and provide multiple revenue streams for a company that are beyond those a typical dive store depend on. Um, they said that they're hoping that this vertically integrated model and demonstrate the offering dive solutions at entry level create sufficient margins to initiate a paradigm shift in these niche markets. Now, I've always said I believe that there is still money in scuba diving and dive stores and the related activities. So it's got to think differently about it. I think many of the dive shops aren't looking that way. You know, it's easy from the sidelines to say that, but uh, there there is opportunities out there, but it is unusual when you see a manufacturer like this uh, go and buy a store. So maybe it's an experiment. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. And this next one is humored power, humored, <laughs> human-powered submarines. International submarine races brings teams. Oh, darn it. I grabbed the wrong one. That figures. It's still a valid story, but uh, this one is on the international submarine races brings 29 teams to the competition. Come on, Internet. They come from around the world to Bethesda, and I'm assuming that's Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, this is the 11th international submarine races, and uh, I don't know if many of you are, remember the old Happy Day show, but that's what comes to mind whenever I hear anybody saying they're talking about the submarine races uh, when they would go to the park and uh, watch those, but I don't think that's really what they were doing. Um, this year's international submarine races drew 29 teams of high school or university students, submarine enthusiasts from as far away as Oman, Venezuela, and France. The race is organized every two years by the Foundation for Undersea Research and Education. Started Monday and run through Friday. Teams are allowed to race their submarines through a 100-meter stretch of water as many times as the schedule permits. There are no guidelines other than safety regulations. Any design for human-powered submarine is fair game. This is a system engineering problems with a few wrinkles. It's underwater. It's human-powered. 
says Daniel Dozer of the Naval Center's Submarine Race Liaison. Uh, winners get bragging rights, and for some categories, crash, cash and prizes. Many former participants have gone to work for the U.S. Navy or government agencies, uh, Dozier said, adding that he has handed out a dozens of business cards to aspiring engineers. Uh, one of the subs is a $10,000 two-person non-propelled yellow submarine. It took more than a year to design and build. is powered by two sets of blades. Uh, there's a lot of uh, engineering that goes on site. One team uh, had uh, called the sub smash uh, names such that they uh, wanted to smash the competition, but ended up smashing into a wall. So they had to do a little bit of construction uh, to fix a flipper. Uh, one team... Uh, they, everybody, uh, this one was from Canada. Everybody sported mustaches, uh, except for the second day, the uh, driver, of the sub shaved his off. It got in the way of my scuba mask. So this is, this is cool. I love to see, I'd, I'd actually love to see it. I'm surprised that discovery or somebody hasn't done and, and videotaped this. This might be a little too geeky for some other people, but, uh, just absolutely interesting to see these submarines. Into the article that I was originally trying to get to, uh, Cayman Dive Operators offer a lionfish course. So uh, it kind of goes back to the, the joke that there's not, a, there's not anything you can do underwater that you can't get a certification for. Uh, this one is a Cayman Divers, and in support of efforts to get rid of the invasive, or at least not maybe not get rid of, but reduce the numbers of uh, invasive lionfish, uh, there's a new specialty course now being offered by do local dive operators. The Department of Environmental and Marine Conservation Boards have approved CITA Water Sports members teaching the Invasive Lionfish Tracker course, a Patty Distinctive Specialty course. The one-day course, which will be available to both residents and visitors, includes general background information on lionfish, including their progressive invasion of northwestern Atlantic and Caribbean explains why action needs to be taken to control the population and how to safely and humanely capture and euthanize the fish. Lionfish were first observed in the Cayman waters in February 2008. Since then, their population has increased steadily because they are native to the Indian Pacific Oceans. Their invasive species has no natural predators in this area. Uh, they're capable of laying 30,000 eggs a year. Other parts of Caribbean lionfish have had far more serious impact. Because we caught it early, we're doing a pretty good job of keeping the lionfish populations down. When you compare us to Bahamas, we are doing well. Any action taken to control the populations is therefore welcomed. And in addition to the Patty Lionfish Tracker Specialty Course, several dive operators also organize lionfish hunts and tournaments at local restaurants, are adding lionfish to their menus. Department of Education is also investigating other means of controlling the numbers, but at present removing them from the sea remains the safest and most effective way to keep them in check. Dave uh, in the chat room says that he was looking on Google Maps and you can see uh, in Bethesda from the satellite view that the, the building that they did the scuba races in is incredibly long. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to guess, I mean, considering Bethesda and its location, uh, was, you know, who knows what the original purpose of that, that pool was. be interesting to find out. Okay, and this very last one is potentially cool scuba gear. And as they say, I never saw the, the show Lost, but it's all done with magnets. 
Magnets enable small design for underwater communications tool. Uh, this one's out of design world. In the underwater realms, divers prefer small items rather than large ones. Kubus Concepts has designed their mini quest to fit in a buoyancy compensator's jacket pocket, 40 percent smaller than the original quest model. It was a challenge for the product designers. They said, uh, uh, and this is what I've always thought it was. They say it's like a high-tech underwater magnadoodle. Uh, the senior engineering manager, Demi Miller, said. Uh, features magnetic stylus for writing on the surface. An eraser bar to clean for diving applications. Must be designed to very tight tolerances and be capable of withstanding pressures common to most diving depths. I'm an interesting. Anybody have one of these? I'd love to, to see if they, they like it. They said these high-energy magne- magnets are manufactured plus or minus one-hundredth of an inch in the print dimensions. Uh, you know, you know. I'm sure for diving gear, this is pretty impressive. But you consider what we've got in computer equipment. Uh, there's not a whole lot uh, of tolerance there. I mean, I, I, you know, I guess it's a press release, so they got to make a a big deal out of it. Yes. Wow. Tight for Magnadool. That that's exactly what I thought. And then uh, Dave has pasted us back uh, some more information on that facility. Yeah, that, that's why I, f- I figured. Uh, it's uh, a naval facility, and we'll go ahead and link that into show notes. Well, this week we don't have Claire and we don't have Mac with us. Mac is doing a cross-country flight. Uh, he's a uh, civilian pilot, so he likes to get some airtime in. Uh, sometimes when he's up in a plane, he actually jumps out of it. He also skydives, so that's where he is at today. Uh, it's an off week for Claire. She's working. And then Jim, I keep giving him grief all the time, but he is out there working hard. Uh, If you know anybody in the area who wants to buy some tools, uh, that's the person you want to talk to. Yeah, that is a huge pool, Dave. Looking at the photo right now, that is is gigantic. Building 18 West Bethesda, Maryland. It almost reminds me of the, uh, you know, the old submarine movies where they've got the submarines and underground, just the large containers. Well, last week we did get some diving, and I know Matt got some in, but we'll go ahead and wait till he's back. But uh, we had beautiful weather here. It was the 4th of July weekend, so we had a couple dives planned. We took uh, two boats out. Uh, Bob took his rigid hull inflatable, and Jim took his uh, 21-foot Sea uh, Ray uh, fiberglass boat out. And I volunteered this time, so we had a little bit of exciting. I, I volunteered to actually trailer Jim's boat. You know, I always feel guilty for uh, him having to drive all the time. And we were actually going over to Chicago land. It was the uh, material service barge was one of our dive locations, and the other was the Tacoma uh, tugboat. So what we did is we we met at uh, Kirk Happenzone, a bowling alley in the area. So we met over at the bowling alley. We car our carpooled caravans over there. Um, and I, I thought I had enough gas. I knew I didn't have enough for a round trip, but uh, normally gas is cheaper there. So I, I put enough. I had just about half a tank, which should be plenty for the distance we were going, especially since I've driven that many times. But I have not driven that route towing a boat. So uh, we're on the uh, toll road. We're about 15 miles from the exit, and my low fuel light goes on. That last eighth of a tank comes up rather quickly. So I went to get I, I We called the other car that we were driving with and said, hey, we're going to have to get off, get some gas. And they said, the next exit is the one with gas. You won't find anything at any of these others. So I was white-knuckling it 
all the way uh, down the highway till we got to the exit. And I'm sure I was on vapors right when we got in. Uh, I I put in more than I I thought I had put in before. That plays a little bit on later in the story. Uh, so we went and we trailered out of uh, Hammond, Indiana, at the Horseshoe Casino. Uh, there's a uh, public launch there, and it's kind of interesting. It's so tight. There's you got the the marina, you got the casino, you got railroad tracks and bridges. So you're going up and over and around, and you actually park your boat trailer quite a bit away from the boat. And this is this location. It's a very well done ramp. My only complaint to the ramp is it is very shallow and long. So the front tires, I've got a Ford Explorer, the front tires of my vehicle were just starting to touch the water before the boat had was deep enough in the water to come off the trailer. Uh, and you could hear the exhaust gurgling away in the water. So not as, I don't really like to be in that far, which I guess that's a little bit better. Sometimes you get in a ramp that's super steep, and uh, you're afraid you can't get out. That wasn't going to be the problem here other than you're going so far in. So anyway, just a beautiful day. And out of Hammond, Indiana, they actually have, uh, this is an artificial bay that they have. They have a breakwater, uh, which is probably a couple hundred acres. And then they have another breakwater, which has got to be 20,000 acres or so, uh, just this huge volume of water with a couple entrances and some lighthouses out in rocks. And as soon as you get out there, you're at the material material service barge. Now, we had just gone diving on the Muskegon the week before, so I was not expecting anything at all exciting as far as visibility or even quality of the wreck. I'd never been on it. I heard a lot about it. It's a 200-foot wreck. It's a barge, but it's a barge that was uh, tall enough where they actually had living quarters inside. So the crew would stay on this barge, and and this is from the turn of the century. Uh, Early 1900s is when it went down. And since it's been down, it's actually been dynamited. Uh, The rumor is, I don't know if there's ever been an official version, but the rumor is that the dive club had dynamited to make it a little bit more accessible. Uh, There have been some people who have died on the wreck. But after being on the wreck, if you died on this wreck, you just were not where you needed to be. So not knowing about it uh, much, you know, we were playing it fairly cautious. Uh, We geared up. We had the two boats. We had with us Kirk, Bob, uh, David, Jim, and myself. Um, It is warm, and this is one of those where you're sitting there in a boat, and it's a little warmer than you'd like. So, you know, I'm... I'm learning now. I, I'm getting used to this warm weather diving. You know, I too much in the winter and, and not enough in the summer. But I was priming the whole way uh, getting that. And also, uh, this is a, this is a good thing to talk about. Uh, listening to uh, Rich and Diver Sink, he was talking about waiting. And Jim and I, on the way out, we've been talking about the same thing. And we had realized that since we had started diving, we have really never properly adjusted our buoyancy, which is, you know, this is not substitute for proper instructions as our, as our disclaimer. But what you should be able to do is when you are in an empty tank on aluminum 80 or at 500 pounds, you should be floating in the water with an empty BC right at eyeball level. And that's when you're going to be lightest. Uh, it should be, you know, on your mass, that water level should be even with your eyeballs. And we had realized that we hadn't done that. You know, it was one of those things. And even when we went through the class, we never did that. Uh, you know, they, they kind of said, oh, how big are you? Here's what you go. Here's the weight. And then as you're buying gear and doing stuff, you're either adding or taking away. But it's all relative to what you've been used to. And, 
you know, uh, wanting to lose my personal body weight a little bit, but not being as successful as I'd like, uh, I w- I've been kind of concerned that I was going to need more weight. So anyway, Jim and I decide that we're going to go and do that. Uh, so, I, and I know I've been a little bit heavy, so I took four pounds off at the beginning of the dive. So I'm kind of concerned I'm not going to be able to get down. Uh, we get in the water, and like what's normal on Lake Michigan, especially in the south side of the lake, and, and really anywhere in the lake this time of the year, the viz up at the top isn't the best, but it gets clear very quickly. And this service barge is only at 30 feet deep. And we get down there, and this is some of the best visibility I've seen in under 100 foot deep, uh, I'd say, ever. I mean, I, I haven't done tropical diving, so you know, you guys are going to laugh at this. But we we had an easy 15 to 20 and it might even been a little better than that. Uh, Jim and I are talking about we're going to have to create some sort of rig to validate these distances. I want to get like a little tape measure with little floating uh, or bullseye so you can actually see it. Because we always argue about that. You know, I'll say 20 feet. Kirk will say 4 feet. We'll meet somewhere in the, men- the middle, and that's what the vis will actually be. But we went down. And this, this wreck, I mean, it was just amazing to the swim along alongside it. You could see the prop. You could, it, it's an excellent one, again, get proper training, but it's an excellent one for some introductory uh, penetration. You know, other than getting entangled, which is easy to do, there's plenty of openings. Uh, this, this barge had uh, what I'm guessing was probably hulls or, or hatches that had to been secured down that have since gone. So there's a lot of openings. So you would go down and there'd be bars or reinforcement that you you could swim underneath, and then you might have three or four feet where you didn't have a clear overhead, and then you're back in the open. So it was really good. And then going up and down is just a great skill, the buoyancy. And taking that four pounds off, I had no problem uh, getting, getting down at all. So uh, we spent quite a bit of time down there. Now, I didn't see the bathtub. I understand there's a bathtub down there. So uh, I want to get back and look at that. And this is going to be one of those dives that's on my list. Uh, and uh, what we're starting to do is build together a list. So if anybody's coming in the area and they want to go diving, I think in just about any type of weather, we can find a dive site. Because the nice thing about Chicago is the wind's coming from the southwest on the east side of Lake Michigan. That might be a little rough. We might have, in fact, it was calling for two to three to four foot waves. And uh, over there we had less than six inches. It really was no waves. The only waves were there by the boat. So we had a nice, about an hour of of bottom time on 80s. Uh, That was great. Uh, David uh, did go up a little early because he's got a 100, uh, 119 actually, and he wanted to make it in the second uh, location. So anyway, uh, I come back up and so I, I still had a thousand pounds in my tank. So I drained it down to 500 and we we took off some more weight. So I'm embarrassed to say I was overweighted. You know, and this is from doing ice dives and winter dives and river dives where it seems like we're constantly throwing weight on. We're not heavy enough. I took over 10 pounds off my dive belt getting to the ideal weight. And I'm probably still, I would say, two pounds heavy. And then Jim, he took six pounds off his dive belt. And I want to say I was actually getting tendonitis and my left elbow from lifting these heavy darn weights into the dive boat. So uh, that about a mile and a half away from 
the material service barge, we have the tugboat Tacoma, originally built in Benton Harbor, Michigan, in our backyard here. Uh, it sank just after the turn of the century as well. Uh, a wooden tugboat, steel reinforced. Uh, it's about 60 feet long. It has the boiler intact. Uh, there's a nice plaque on it. I was told it's good luck to be the first person to find a plaque. Uh, I don't think I was the first person somebody pointed out to me, but they said that they weren't being counted in the good luck discovery. But that that was an interesting vessel. That one you don't really need as much time. Uh, 20 minutes on that on that one is going to be about all that you're going to want to do. Uh, I mean, if you if you don't mind just seeing the same thing over and over. And what I did is I did I laps and zigzags around the wreck, uh, raising my my buoyancy in the water column a couple feet each lap until we got time to leave. But uh, And then we got up and Jim did some checking of his weights, and, and that's where he took some off. So a beautiful day out there. Um, if you look at the Mud Club site, uh, you can see where I've got the track. I did a GPS track from one site to the other site. And you'll notice that's not quite a straight line. Uh, that was Jim driving. He was, uh, uh, he likes to, uh, I think he thinks he's driving a jet ski. So he was jumping up over the wake of Bob's boat. Uh, but a sunny day uh, between that and the next two days of being out in the sun, I did get a burn that is just now starting to uh, ease up a little bit. So anyway, uh, you know, we did the, the required post-dive uh, meal and then we started to head back. Uh, we split up from Bob. Uh, we were probably about a quarter mile from home when I had noticed that the light, the low fuel light had come on. Only this time we didn't quite make it to the uh, gas station, so we had to call for backup. So I had to call for my wife to, to bring us some gas. So I now exactly know how much it takes, and it's about a quarter cup less than what I had in the tank to get from uh, <laughs> from Barnes Harbor, uh, Indiana to home, uh, and it, it's a game I play. I, you know, it, it's crazy that I, I didn't have, you know, it, we, we make sure we have plenty of air. We need to make sure we have plenty of gasoline and we do in the boat. And I was just being a cheapskate. I had, it wasn't a money thing or anything else. It was just, you know, I, I, it's, it's like stealing from me. I just get so tired of paying these companies, uh, for the gas. So I only put in what I need. And then, you know, and maybe you do this too. I watch the gas price. If it goes down, that's when I fill. So I thought it was going to go down. So I'm not going to keep any extra in the tank. I'll, I dr- drive people crazy. I'll go and I'll put in two gallons every day for a week until it goes and drops. But uh, I got burned. And so one thing I did learn is that the gas mileage towing a boat is about one third of what I get normally. So uh, if you were following Jim, uh, you probably noticed that he tweeted uh, that. And I, I've gotten a little bit of ribbing over it. But uh, if, if that's the worst that, that happened out of the weekend, uh, that's not bad. For this weekend, I don't really have any dives planned. not saying that we're not going to go and get any in, but uh, hopefully we do. Uh, interested to hear what everybody, what kind of dives other people have coming up. If you want to have comments or suggestions for the show, you can send them to the show at scubaobsessed.com. Make sure you head over to our Facebook page. Tell your friends about the show. If you dive with somebody and you got a dive buddy, have them uh, listen to the podcast. Send them some links. Uh, if you want to know what the official links are, you can, again, email us at the show, and I'll go ahead and forward you the links to all the information. It's also available on the website, scubaobsessed.com. Uh, you can also go to Facebook, Facebook 
facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed. We like to have friends. Also, if you can give us some five-star comments in iTunes, we always love to have those. And then we've got, we're trying to get a discussion going on over in the forum on dry suits. I am determined in the next 30 days I'm going to get a dry suit. Uh, we had Shipwreck Mike. Uh, he, he put a comment on there, so I, I appreciate his his information. Uh, he said, I would go with either the new FLX Extreme by DOI, uh, made with Tri-Land material with polyester outer layers, same material as the tops of the FLX 5050, makes it lightweight, durable, and supple. DOI designed a complete new overlay to give it suit its own unique look. Cordura is used in the upper body and legs for extra durability. This almost reads like a a press release, Mike. Uh, Features diagonal front-end zipper, uh, classic zipper design, telescoping torso, suspenders, crotch zipper, zipper guard, warm neck, collar, apex swivel inlet, adjustable automatic exhaust valves, 36 inner hose, Oversized quick connect, disconnect, internal waist adjustment cord, double layer material over knee, rock boots. Uh, uh, price is 2600 to 2800 And that's that's the thing. is I, you know, I'd really like to stay about $2,000. Uh, Dave in the chat room is saying go fusion. That's another one that's on the short list. And there's three of those. You've got the sport, the bullet, and the tech. Uh, sport being the lightest. Bullet being the strongest and tech being kind of in between, uh, but those can get right there in that same price range too. And then, uh, then there's some places that will do custom. I can get a custom dry suit for about eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. Uh, you've got some other uh, dry suits that are a little bit less. So I've just got to get in and, and try some of these out. But if you got some uh, comments or suggestions on the dry suit, why don't you head over to the Scuba Obsessed? forums, put some information. If you got a topic, you got questions. In addition, you can go ahead and throw them on over there, trying to get some activity going on over there in the forums. Uh, we should have some more information on the dive boat project coming up. Uh, that will be getting going here pretty soon. And also we have some more targets that the club is diving on in Lake Michigan. So hopefully we'll have some announcements uh, coming up yet this year. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, we appreciate all the feedback, all the followers, all the listeners. It's 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 great doing the show. Also, if you have any ideas for guests, again, we'd love to have those sent to us. Um, and we're to that, that part of the show where we do the bad scuba joke. Now, this one, again, is not quite a scuba joke, but, uh, you know, after going through about 400 jokes, this is about the closest I could find. So hopefully it's enough to keep you entertained until next week. Uh, a loaded minivan pulls into the only remaining campsite at a campground. Four children leaped from the vehicle and began feverishly unloading gear and setting up a tent. The boys rushed to gather firewood while the girls and their mothers set up a camp stove and cooking utensils. A nearby camper marveled to the youngster's father. That, sir, is some display of teamwork. The father replied, I have a system. No one goes to the bathroom until the camp is set up. So, on that note, for myself, Jim, Mac, Claire, go out there and get wet, get wet, and dive safe.